Welcome to the Minnesotan Hockey Podcast. The goal of our pods are to give our followers a taste of how great the game of hockey is here in Minnesota. Speaking of great, check out the Minnesotan, a cool and authentic apparel concept, which is a one-of-a-kind, 100% unique to the, to the marketplace. You can visit their flagship store seven days a week in historic White Bear Lake or on the web at theminnesotan.com. On today's show, we sit down with Kent Murphy, who got his coaching career started in the in the 1980s at East Grand Forks and then made his way to Bloomington Jefferson for a few years and now lives in Colorado where he coached until 2012. He's got a ton of great players and a ton of great influences and a ton of great stories. We hope you enjoy today's show. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire Good morning, Kent. How are you doing today? Doing great. This, uh, if you don't... uh, touch a name here uh hundreds and hundreds of names you touch this is going to be a great podcast i appreciate you jumping on with me today oh my pleasure tony uh it's funny we've never met in person but it feels like we know each other because of a lot of the commonalities in our life and one of them is you've listened to a lot of these podcasts over the quarantine have you not yeah it's been just great for me to reconnect with my minnesota hockey past of all the all the people you've had on talking about the history. It's just awesome. Well, I appreciate you listening. When I heard you had listened, I was like, wow, some random hockey coach from Colorado is listening to our show. And, and after sitting down with you for the last hour before the show, I, I can see why you'd want to listen because you've touched a lot of these lives and a lot of these lives have touched you. Yep, absolutely. So let's get started. Let's get to find out who Kent Murphy is. Um, you grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, and uh, let's be honest, you were no hockey star uh, growing up, but you've touched a lot of hockey stars a- as a result of the game. Yeah, for sure. I uh, played a little hockey growing up, wrestling, ba- baseball, but uh, I wasn't uh, a great high school hockey player, but I got into coaching while I was in high school in Fargo. Um, it's a great story. Uh, you, you said to me before the show, you know, my mom worked at uh, North Dakota State. My dad was in sales. Um, so my point is you're fairly uh, middle-class kid with a couple brothers. But you guys, uh, your parents weren't terribly athletic. What What do you think what turned you into being such a lover of sports? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, my parents, neither one of them played any sports. So I kind of just dabbled in a little bit of everything. But my two best friends in high school were varsity hockey players and uh, at that time in Fargo the feeder system was all built around each grade school and so the three of us started coaching at the grade school which we went to um, and I did that during high school and I really liked coaching hockey and then I got offered the squirt a travel team the year after I um, graduated from north high and I coached squirt a travel I was I mean, I was just a terrible coach at that point, but (laughs) let's be honest, right? Yeah. I I wasn't any good at all, but you know, back then they let young coaches learn and learn on the job without getting torn to pieces. So fortunately I survived 
and was able, when I went to school at UND, to coach over in East Grand Forks. So back then, there were basically a north side team, the Raiders, and a south side team, the Flyers, correct? You were, you, they gave you the keys to the to the number one squirt team on the north side of Fargo. That's pretty amazing they would do that with a 17, 18-year-old kid. Yeah, I mean, it was probably a mistake, but yeah, they saw enough into me and gave me a chance, or maybe they had nobody else, but yeah, it was really fun, and, and that you know, the, that bit me with travel hockey, and I, I coached for the next 37 years. So you went to North Dakota, University of North Dakota, and somehow someone from the east side of the river got you to come over and coach Peewees. How did, what, how did that transpire? Did you find them, or did they find you? Uh, I found them. So the, the, the city ran the program, so I just went over and applied. I really wanted to coach in Minnesota. I didn't want to coach in North Dakota. And uh, I had Pee Wee B's the first couple of years and then the Pee Wee A team uh, for six years before I finally graduated and then uh, moved to the Twin Cities. You probably spent a couple of days at the antique bar, I'm guessing, in your oh, day. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. I have a good story. My friend and I, uh, we worked together, went to grad school together, and we wherever we would go, this guy was a bartender at the antique at UND, and we would be in Boston or Baltimore or New York or wherever we would be. If someone would walk up to him like he was Elvis, like, "Hey, did you work at the antique?" And I was like, "Does does everybody know the bartender at the antique?" He goes, "It's a pretty popular place, Tony." Yeah, you know? no, no doubt. I never made it to the antique, but the stories from the antique just were endless. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. All right, so at some point you're coaching Pee Wee A's in uh, East Grand Forks. Did did you tell me that Dan Parker and and Jason Mack, who are now famous, more famous for being hockey dads and hockey players, were on your squad at the time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the first year I had the Pee Wee A's, Dan was a first year, and Jason was a returning second year player. I think that was the eighty two eighty three season. They were on my team. Uh, it was great. Great fun. East Grand Forks, great hockey town. A lot of good mentors I had there. And really, I think that coaching East Grand Forks laid the foundation for my for my game and my coaching because in addition to coaching in the winter, I coached at the Blue Line Club summer hockey school all summer. I coached Gino Gasparini's hockey school. And I really learned a lot about teaching and coaching the game. In my years in East Grand Forks. So at that time, you had come a long way from the, the Fargo Raiders first year. You, you kind of got confident. Would that be a good word to say? I mean, I got better. You know, I got better. And I think coaching a winter team is different than coaching at a hockey school. And you just learn how to do drills and how to manage your practice flow and how to keep kids moving and how to teach skills. The thing that's great about Minnesota hockey is, you know, as a youth coach, you have one job, right? You you are there to help produce a high school hockey team. And so your mission statement is, you know, absolutely clear. And you're there to teach skills and develop people uh, for the high school program. So I loved it. Yeah, well, we'll get to that later. That's a great statement. I could bookmark that one right there because it still is that way to some degree here today where you know where our bantam program is to, is to to get kids ready for the high school or peewees are to get you ready for bantams and it's it's a little bit more of a uh a system versus a uh we're here to make you a division one hockey player yeah i mean my foundation was good for me Grand forks i tell you a story i mean i never i never really realized how much i'd learned till i 
I went, when I first got to Jefferson, I must've been coaching in the summer clinic before the season. And I ran the practice and, and I came off the ice and there's JP Parisi, right? I mean, and what, you know, a guy that you just worshiped, right? Growing right. up when I did in the Minnesota and he's, he stops me and, you know, I knew he'd been an assistant with the North stars and his famous player. And he goes, wow, you really know a lot of drills. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, you really have the flow down and you really, and I'm like, God, I learned all that in East Grand Forks, right? All of those lessons from those eight years there uh, were enough that I impressed a guy like J.P. Parisi that first summer I was in Bloomington. That's pretty cool. So um, let's let's go through your coaching years there. You said that there was a kind of a magical run of Crookston and Rozo, and some of the guys you coached against up there were, were somewhat legends, Dick Johnson being one of them. Yeah, I mean, there's nobody – no more legendary coach than Dick Johnson, in my opinion. I mean, I, I don't know how many co- years he coached the Rose OPWAs, but it was over 30 for sure. And um, I, we never we never beat him. I mean, I never never won a game against Dick Johnson, which is kind of unbelievable. But, yeah, there's a, a good run of hockey in northwest Minnesota in the early 80s because Crookston won the state PWA championship in 83 and then Dick Rozo team won it the next three years. So four years in a row, the champion from Minnesota, when it was all one combined, uh, combined uh, session was all came from district 16 uh, up in Northwest Minnesota. And, and times were, we'll just stick with the eighties here. Times were a little bit different than they, they, we used to assemble Minnesota until probably like 88 or 89 season used to assemble by birth uh, by birth year. So there would be two birth years. And I think they changed it uh, to, to, to eliminate uh, ninth grade boys from going and take and playing JV or varsity. To, it basically pushed everybody down. So there wouldn't be that, that, that we, it kind of got rid of midgets at that point because midgets was a big thing for ninth and 10th grade kids who couldn't play high school hockey. What was the effect of that when you were coaching uh, peewees at that day or, or just, just youth hockey? that those days yeah i think you're right it was in the mid late 80s where they moved the birth year from january 1st back to september and it definitely created you know an older an older field of peewees and i've coached peewees my whole career um but yeah you got some older kids and you you had a lot of seventh graders playing peewees then and eighth and ninth graders playing bantam so uh, yeah it made it a little bit uh, a little bit better, I think. Uh, and it made definitely it feel like a little bit of an older age group for both the Peewees and the Bantams when they moved the birth, birth, uh, the birth date back. What was so special about Dick Johnson when you got into a game with Dick Johnson or what were, what were his teams? Like what was, what was the, what was the, what was the aura that he gave off when you were coaching against him or when you watched him on the bench? I mean, Dick Johnson was just a legend. I mean, his, his teams, were so disciplined. And I mean, he was really hard on the kids, right? He was an old school type coach. I don't know that he could survive today, but the kids loved him. And, you know, his teams passed the puck, they shared the puck, worked hard, unselfish, and, you know, just a real great skating flow type game. It's funny because one, one year I was at the state tournament, I was sitting next to a kid just randomly at the old St. Paul Civic Center. And he said he'd played for Dick 
but never played high school. And he just spoke about Dick like he was a god. So here's a kid that never played high school hockey for Roseau, but played peewees. And he couldn't have been more reverential about Dick, right? So, you know, that little story plus coaching against him all those years was uh, really an eye opener. And it really made me feel like I, I just wanted to keep coaching peewees because you could have such an impact as a peewee coach. So 1988, you finally graduate from college. On You're on the eight-year plan. Um, uh, you get a job or you get into a job interview process down in the Twin Cities. Uh, walk me through the, that part and how, how, how youth hockey influenced your, your, your professional career. Yeah, it was really, really great, interesting story. So in summer of 1988, I'm out looking for a job and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to go coach somewhere, coach Pee Wee somewhere, whoever will have me. And I kind of was gravitating maybe to Osseo Maple Grove because my team had gone to that tournament every year. And so I knew some of the people there, but I'm at a job interview and the, the guy that was doing the interview sent me to talk to some of the employees. And I walk into an office and it's Chris Tucker's mom. And I don't know, I can't remember her name, but she wanted, she didn't spend any time talking to me about that job. The minute she found out I was a pretty experienced youth hockey coach, she stops uh, talking to me about that potential job and gets on the phone and calls Leo Crowley, who was the president of Bloomington Jefferson Booster Club that year, or that two years, and said, hey, I got this guy in front of me. We need to get him coaching at Jefferson. When can you meet with him? And she set up a lunch with me and Leo the next day. And I went to lunch with Leo Crowley. I couldn't have been more impressed with uh, the man. Just uh, obviously a very successful businessman and uh, really an advocate for Jefferson hockey. And that's how I ended up going to Jefferson and coaching in their youth program was because of that happenstance job interview with Chris Tucker's mom and then the lunch she set up the next day for me with Leo. So the job never really went anywhere, did it? But the, no, but the, I never uh, took the, that job. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no. I That's the best up, part about this. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I didn't get the job, but I, but I definitely got a coaching job out of that interview process. Yeah. But you did get a good job. You worked somehow, got involved with with Wells Fargo, and you've been with them for thirty plus years, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, I ended up starting with Wells Fargo that summer, and and uh, still there to this day. So that's part of this, because so, Wells Fargo eventually takes you out of Minnesota. But before we take you out of Minnesota, your coach, the second year you're there, you're handed the reins to Bloomington Jefferson's PWA team. Yep. Yeah, my first year with the uh, Coach PWB is the first year, and then the second year I was 89-90. Uh, 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 we had a good team that year. That's uh, Mark Parrish, Mike Anderson, Josh DeWolf. We're all second-year returning Peewees, and we end up third third in the Peewee A-State tournament that year. And and then it just kind of gets better, right? I mean, your teams go – eventually you do win a state title a couple years later, right? Yeah, we did. We were second in 1991. We were second in the state. We lost to uh, Duluth East. That was the Dave Spihar locker team. They were definitely better than we were. And yeah, we were we went to the state tournament every year. I was the PWA coach except for my final year. And then uh, one the year you won at ninety two ninety three. I think that's the year that uh, Jefferson pulled the trifecta. Right, they won the Bantam Double A, the or the Bantam A, PWA, and the state title all in the same season. Yeah, pretty amazing, right? I mean, we swept everything that year. My PWA team won. 
Uh, we were by far the best team in the state that year. I think we lost one game all year. Bantams won, the high school won. And uh, that was, uh, those were the glory days. I'd never really been a part of something that was where everybody was so dedicated to excellence. Not my, not my work career or my coaching career. Jefferson was just a magical place in the 80s and 90s with uh, the booster club, the high school coaches, the players and the parents. Everybody just so dedicated to excellence. So those team, that 92-93 team that only lost one game, uh, walk me through a few of the guys that were on that team and what you remember about those kids. Yeah, that was a great, we had we had six Division One players in that team. That's Lee Brooks and uh, David Hergert, uh, Ryan Lenton, uh, Mike Stansberry was our goalie. Uh, we were we were a great team. And uh, just to tell you a little bit about that team and how dominant we were back then, the Silver Stick was probably the preeminent Bantam and Pee Wee tournament in Minnesota. Not only would you get the best player but best teams from all over minnesota but you'd get some out-of-state teams like the madison capital or the uh the seattle snow kings some great out-of-state teams would come in we won that tournament that year with five games we weren't scored upon just an amazing amazing team with lots of lots of talent and just a great group of kids that really, really worked hard. So let's. I want to. I want to make sure that we're talking apples to apples here. So the ninety two ninety three team, uh, when they played against other USA teams, that was it was apples versus apples. There was no birth year. Like they weren't six months younger. Like that. Like it is today. So these were. Uh, they were a September. USA was September first cutoff, right? Until correct. the next year, yep. correct? Yep, till the next year, and that's when USA went to January 1st. And Minnesota actually, went to July 1st. Minnesota went to July 1st. So, so, so really just for you hockey, event. youth hockey historians, I think there's only one of them. It's me, probably. But but I love understanding when this all took place. So this kind of changed things up for, for everybody in Minnesota and the U.S. Kind of The silver stick kind of went away after that, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it was still a great tournament up into the early 2000s because I brought my – Littleton, Colorado team there every year. Uh, it was still a great tournament, but then the teams from out of state were younger. Right. Right. Like they are now. Teams from out of state were younger than like they are now, but uh, it was still a great tournament, I think, up until the mid 2000s. Right. Um, we never won it at Littleton until 2001. So well, we'll get to that game in, in just a second. So, so at this point, um, you had, a, had a good run, but I really want to get to this 93, 94 team. Cause that was a probably just as good a team as the 92, 93 team. Correct. Oh yeah. We were really good. I mean, Andy Kranz played a third year of peewees and he scored 140 goals and had 200 points. Ryan Lemire was on that team. Uh, we were great. We, I think we, Again, we won 55, 56 games and lost only one during the regular season. And then we got upset in the regional. And that was when regionals weren't double elimination. And then the next year, they changed it because actually the best team in the state got beat and didn't have a, a round robin way to come through a back door and qualify for state. So it was really a, a tough, tough loss for our kids, but it. It changed Omaha, set up the regionals so that that won't happen again. I love you. That you just showed your age there. You called it Maha. Some kids don't even know what Maha is. Maha is okay. what Minnesota <laughs> hockey is today. I love that. I love yep. it. I still uh, hear people say like, "Yeah, we went to Maha State." I'm like, 
you mean Minnesota hockey state, you know, like it was like, it was like, there's multiple state tournaments. Um, quickly, just, I, just to give you some more history. When I played peewee hockey in the late seventies, it went by district. So if you won your district, you went to state. It was that easy. It was, there was no regionals. There was no, you know, uh, pairings. There was no anything. It was no rankings. It was just, if you won your district, you went to state. And it was, it was really hard to get to the state tournament then. Yeah. Well, we were in, we were in District 6, you know, in the glory days when Burnsville was great, we were great, Edina was great, Minnetonka was great, Apple Valley was good. I mean, it was harder to get out of District 6 than it was to almost to win the state tournament. It seemed like there were so many good teams. Um, you you coached against a lot of great coaches in the district. Tonka had a legend. Uh, Apple Valley had good coaches. Uh, walk through some of those those guys that you coached against in, in District 6. Yeah, so Mark Mark Cressy was at Minnetonka some of those years. Brian George at Apple Valley. You know, there were some great coaches. Uh, I don't think Jeff had started quite yet at Edina. No, he was uh, four years after that, like 98-ish. Yeah, yeah, few years after that. Maybe it was Dick Bluston who was the peewee coach. I wouldn't doubt it. He's still coaching. Yeah, he's still coaching. So great coaches and, uh, you know, just great teams. I mean, we – I don't know if you remember this, but they used to have what's called Southside Stars, and they yes. split the city into four quadrants. So that 90-91 year when we lost the state championship at at South St. Paul, like at you know one in the afternoon, and then three hours later we were on the ice, the best four kids from Jefferson's. So that was Toby Peterson and Ben Clymer and Ryan Treble, and the best four kids from Edina. Peter Armbrust, best kid from Apple Valley, Brad DeFaw and Carl Gering. So we lose the state championship at one in the afternoon and we had a Southside Stars practice that evening. And, you know, you just had an all-star team. I mean, every probably kid on that team, best four from Edina, Burnsville, Eden Prairie, probably maybe it was Dennis Maruk's son that year. All those kids played Southside Stars, you know, later that later that month and it was just great because the kids all got along and you battled tooth and nail during the regular season and then you'd all get together on this kind of quadrant all-star team and and play for a a spring league state or championship uh, format it's uh the names have changed uh but the culture hasn't changed much i mean we still have it to this day where you have these tournaments like the selects and stars of tomorrow and things like that where these kids are paired up together or they play triple a teams uh off season and the friendships they build there it makes it pretty special here in minnesota where you play against each other during district play and state play but then when the season's over you kind of pair together and find your way and i I think it's 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 great for our culture i believe yep this is awesome yep um so this is the part i want to get to you move to you get you get a job opportunity to to go to colorado a great career opportunity for you professionally did you almost not go because of hockey oh yeah i mean i i really was torn i mean it was absolutely the right thing to do professionally because Wells Fargo was going to task me to open a territory and I'd make a lot more money and move up a lot faster. But I just about didn't go because of my volunteer coaching job at Jefferson. It was just so special to be there and part of that. Uh, But, you know, 
probably the right decision and certainly took me down a whole different path as far as coaching on more of a national level out of Colorado. But yeah, I just about didn't go. Uh, but I ended up deciding to uh, take the plunge because they had hockey in Colorado, though I knew it wasn't wasn't going to be as good, or I didn't think it would be. That which which really enters a different chapter. It's um, just speaking coaching. We won't talk about your profession too much, but it entered. You, you kind of entered it more of an adventure, isn't it? At this point, you you arrive in Colorado. How did you find the Littleton program? Was this by mistake, or did you did you find them, or did they find you? Oh, no, I kind of knew Littleton had the best program in Colorado. Their team had come and played my team uh, in 92, 93 that season. So I, they were in town for something. We played them. Uh, but, you know, in the mid-90s in Colorado, there were only three or four ice arenas in Denver when I moved here in 94. And the Avalanche came the next year. But my goal when I went to Littleton was to make it like Jefferson. But that first year, I mean, it was like going from the Marine Corps as far as kids and disciplines to like a bad news bears type situation. I mean, there was, <laughs> it was not the same. Although we had a great season that first year at Littleton. We went to the Nationals. Uh, this is back when they had Nationals for Peewees. They don't have it yeah, anymore. They, yeah, they had Nationals for Peewees, and that was really an eye-opener because I didn't even really re- realize that. Um but I went to Littleton. It was the best program. And then my goal was to bring Colorado hockey to the same level as Minnesota hockey, which I think we did over the next seven or eight years. What did it take? Did, what, did the Avalanche had winning Stanley Cups right out of the shoot? It couldn't have hurt. That had a big difference. And I think kids wanting to play hockey, mm-hmm. but there were a lot of transplants, you know, in Colorado, there's a lot of Canadians in Minnesota, Northern people and up in a city like Denver. So there was a nucleus of good people that came from hockey areas that wanted to make a non-traditional hockey area like a traditional hockey area. So, um, you know, there were some people on our board and there was a couple other coaches in town, but, you know, we, we kind of had to drag the programs kicking and screaming. I mean, our tryouts at Jefferson were like professional tryouts, you know, every kid had a number and things like that. And then, in you know, at Littleton or Colorado, you know, it was just kind of ramshackle. So I brought all the things I learned from Jefferson to Colorado. And then, you know, we got to be awfully, awfully good. Did you? Okay, so you get there. Um, how many years did it take for you guys to go from, like you said, the bad news bears to, to respectability? Yeah, so it's interesting. So I coached at Littleton 94 to 2006 basically it's a double a community-based program and they built more ice arenas and got more programs so we end up now today there's like 15 double a programs from probably seven or eight when i got there but just making everything more professional and trying to make uh it more like minnesota it it, it took a while but you know we my team's at littleton uh, in the 12 years I was there, we won 10 state championships. We went to nationals six times out of those 12 years. So we were good. Um, but the biggest difference was the silver stick, I think. So when we first, I would go back to the silver stick every year with my Littleton team. And we would lose in the in the round robin. And then we started to get to the quarterfinals and we would lose. And then finally in 2001, we had a, 
you know, 99, we had a great team. We were second in the nation that year, but we couldn't make the semifinals of the silver stick. But then in 2001, we ended up winning the silver stick in Bloomington. It's also the first year we won a national championship at Littleton. Uh, great team, 10 division one players in that 2001 Littleton double a team. And we ended up beating one of the, the all time great Minnesota uh, peewee teams of all time twice that year so uh, you know it took about six years right before we could finally make the semifinals, the finals of the silver stick and then when we finally won the silver stick I felt like we'd kind of arrived on the same level as the top Minnesota teams. So let's go back to that 2001 uh, team that you had uh, I'm going to give you my version, just uh, being a Jefferson dad and uh, having a player uh, co- from that 2001 team coach my son at Pee Wee's Squirts and Pee Wee's, Matt LeBombard. Um, the legend grows. Do you know that, right? I mean, the legend grows oh, yeah. for that team. Um, by 2010, so this is eight, nine years later, um, you know, granted, Eric Johnson was on that team. Um, uh, Peter Mueller was on that team. That team won the state title 12 to nothing over Kennedy at the, at the Wee level. I mean, this is a dominant, dominant uh, Wee team as you're ever going to find. I get to talking to Bombo, we called him, and said, well, how did you lose to this Colorado team? Was, well, they were a bantam team, Tony. <laughs> That's the first thing. He's like, it really wasn't a fair fight, you know. Unbelievable. Do you see what I mean? Like, do you see how the legend grows on that deal? Like, like he, some parent probably told him that they were a Bantam team. That's why he lost to him. They weren't a Bantam team. I, I knew that wasn't true. Uh, even a couple weeks later, I run into a friend of mine who's out there and, and, and who was on involved with your program. He says, no, that was a legit Pee Wee team. They won the national championship. Jefferson just wasn't as good that day. That was his response. I'm like, okay, I got, I got the story right at least. But that team uh, that you had, walk through what – I can only imagine you being a Jefferson guy, uh, coaching and trying to build a program to be like Jefferson, that the parents and probably even the kids to some degree couldn't stand the thought of Jefferson by the time they you lined the puck up and played against these guys. Yeah, well, let me set the record straight. So we were actually younger, okay? <laughs> we were... We were six, six months, months younger. younger. Right. Okay? So that, that's what's so funny about that. And it's so Minnesota, right? As long as you're losing, we're okay. We're just a cute little Colorado team. But as soon as we win, then the excuses come out, right? But, yes. It's like that uh, in any sport, any level, yeah. right? It's the best. I yeah, love it. We actually beat Jefferson. You know, Jefferson that year was 56-2. and two, And their only two losses were to us. Once in a scrimmage. And then in the championship was silver stick and the scores were five to one in the scrimmage and five to two in the championship was silver stick. And, uh, they, they knew who we were by that championship game and we still put the wood to them. But uh, did, you, did you tell me earlier before the show, you said something like after you had beaten that team, you had another game that day and there was a, it was a sold out rink to see this team that had it, beaten Jefferson, right? Yeah, it was unbelievable. So we, we would fly into Minnesota, get up at four in the morning. And I knew Denny Connolly had a great team that year. So I set up a scrimmage. So we come right off the airplane and we beat them five to one. And there was shock, right? And you could tell my manager that year was actually from Wyzetta. And then we played Wyzetta was, I think, ranked number five in the state. 
And so by the time we played Wyzetta later that day, early evening, there was about a thousand, man, there was hundreds of people in the arena. So nobody could believe that a team had beat Jefferson and people came from everywhere to watch us play Wyzetta that afternoon. And we handled them even easier. But um, I told our kids and, and we actually beat uh, Tom Loken's team in 98. They won the state championship, but I think my kids got so pumped to play Jefferson because they got so sick of me talking about Jefferson, right? I would spend so much time telling them about Jefferson and Minnesota hockey and a Colorado kid going back to Minnesota. They just loved it. They couldn't believe there's outdoor ice and cheerleaders and we'd go to the Schwann's cup and, you know, the whole atmosphere. And actually Tony, a lot of my players ended up going to play high school hockey in Minnesota, I think because I exposed them to it as peewees. A few of them played at only angels with Trebs and, and uh, they just thought Minnesota hockey was like just a paradise, you know? Um, and they, they loved it, but yeah, they got a little tired of me talking about Jefferson. So an opportunity to play them, they really wanted to beat them. It's an interesting, me it's, up, I it's, think. it's an interesting highway between, uh, Minnesota and Colorado. Cause there are kids that leave here to go play midgets in, in for the Thunderbirds. And then yeah. there are kids from Colorado. I can name a few that have come from Colorado to come and play here as well. What do you think that is? What well, is the grass greener in Colorado? Is the grass greener here? I mean, I think it's. What is? What do you think that goes into that? I just i I can't understand a Minnesota kid going to Colorado to play midgets. Or uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Even though the Colorado Thunderbirds, which you know, we'll get into that. Uh, is a great top 10 AAA program, but just the cost involved, why you would want to give up. I think the most, the greatest thing about Minnesota hockey is you grow up, you play with the same group of kids from the time you're eight, nine, 10 years old, all the way through high school. There is nothing that can replace that. It's so wonderful. And, you know, kids would leave my Wee team and I'd barely see them again because they'd go play Bantam somewhere, Midgets and, uh, I, I just, I've never understood a, a Minnesota kid coming back, coming to Colorado to play, but I do understand Colorado kids going to play high school hockey in Minnesota because it's, it's such a great, great experience. All right. So you win three national, was it three national championships? Oh, one, oh, three and oh, five. Yeah. We won three national championships, uh, three and five years at the double a level. Although we kind of played a hybrid schedule. I mean, my double-A team at Littleton, Colorado was so good that we had to travel to find competition. So we'd be on an airplane four or five, four or five times a year, go to Minnesota once or twice, uh, typically twice. We'd play in the White Bear Lake Tournament in the Silver Stick. We'd go to Chicago or Detroit. We always played in the Quebec Wee Tournament, which is just a fabulous event. So, yeah, but we won three national championships at double-A, and that's when double-A was really, really good. Uh, there was no AAA in Minnesota or in Colorado, so all the best kids played AA, and we played kind of a hybrid schedule. We play some AAA teams and and AA teams. So you, one of those teams, uh, while they're all really good, who are who are some of the players that uh, played on some of those teams that are now you know playing pro hockey or playing college hockey? Yeah, well, our our 2003 uh, national championship team was a great team. We had eight division one players or major junior, both combined mm-hmm. on that team. Uh, we, we were 
basically undefeated. We lost one game, 66 and one that year. And the team we played in the double A national championship was coached by Basil McCray out of St. Louis, Missouri. Wow. And they, they were basically a triple A team that got kind of forced to play double A from some political situation with the St. Louis junior blues versus where they were Chesterfield. So it was kind of two hybrid teams playing in the national championship. Great, great, great group of kids. Um, uh, uh, Drew Shaw was on that team. Brett Kostelansky played at New Hampshire. Lots of uh, great players. Probably maybe the 2005 national championship team. We had a lot of uh, uh, name players in that team. Seth Jones was on that 2005 national championship team. He was actually a squirt. A uh, kid named Chad Banner was on that team. He ended up going back and playing. He grew up in Hermantown. He was in Colorado. Yeah. And then went back to Hermantown and played for uh, for uh, Bruce LaPlante. Um, they must have won second that year because I don't think they won until later. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the six in a row. Hermantown so, jab from all yeah. the way from Colorado. I got to love it. <laughs> so, yeah, we had some some great players uh, on all three of those teams. All had more than half a dozen D1 players on those double-A teams. I'd be remiss to not go back to that that Colorado, the, the team, that the Littleton team that beat the Jefferson team. You said there were 10 Division One players in that team, which was probably more than the Jefferson had. Yeah, but I mean, they, they had us in the top end, though, with Eric Johnson being a number one overall draft pick. And Peter Mueller, I think, went number eight. Yeah. Um, and those guys are still a little bitter. There was an article in the Denver Post. Must So Peter Mueller ended up playing with the Avalanche for a couple of years before concussions ended his career. And the Denver Post did an article, and it must have been about youth hockey and about those two guys growing up and playing together on the Blades. <laughs> and at Jefferson, but they did mention that Littleton team that beat them twice, you know, a little bitterness still even 10, 10, 11 years later in a, in a Denver Post article. That's <laughs> that good. I bet you got a good read. smirk out of that. Yeah, that was fun. Okay, so then fast forward to um, 2006, 2007. Um, well, actually, in 2002, Frank Saratori uh, was in the, living in the Springs at that point and had two twin boys, uh, Tim and Tom, and wanted a little bit more out of uh, hockey and kind of helped start the Thunderbirds. Walk through that process of going from AA to AAA, and it finally made it to AAA for Peewees in 2006, but it actually happened in 2002. Yeah, so, you know, it was really kind of sad the Colorado kid that was any good basically had to leave the state as a ninth or a 10th grader and lots of them went out east to play at Hotchkiss and Exeter and those kind of prep schools Uh, but they basically had to leave they had to go somewhere to play hockey so Frank being at Air Force and then he had a couple of kids his kids were peewees at that time he came to me and we had a couple dads that were pretty influential and we kind of formed a club uh, where all the double A would feed into a triple A Thunderbird team. And we called them the Thunderbirds because of the Air Force Academy. And we started with midgets and then went to Bantams and then to finally to Peewees. But Frank, you know, was in, instrumental in that, in getting that started and kind of providing the impetus so that Colorado kids could actually stay home during high school and play midget hockey 
at a high level and not have to move out of state. Do you think that was a little bit of an influence uh, because of where he grew up in, in, in Coleraine? Or do you think it was more of an influence to just get, uh, get kids more grounded and keep them local? I think both. I mean, I think anybody that comes from Minnesota wants, you know, believes in that model. Uh, hates to see kids leave at, in high school if they don't have to. And at least given a kid an option that he could stay in town and live at home and play high-level hockey to try to play college hockey. Uh, I think that, you know, that's just was a driving force behind it. And, you know, Frank, he really said something to me that really hit home at that time. He said, you know, this is expensive, right? So playing AAA hockey is very, very expensive. So he said, you know, if somebody's good enough, let's find a way through scholarships or donations to let them play. And I think we always did that at the Thunderbirds. If a kid was good enough, we'd cobble together the money so that he could play AAA hockey um, as long as he had the ability. In the early days, you said the Thunderbirds basically just, when you said the way they came up with the name Thunderbirds because it was Air Force or whatever, that never dawned on me. I never knew why they were called the Thunderbirds. Were the the practices kind of centered more down towards the Springs? Because people don't realize geography. This is an hour, hour and a half from downtown Denver. Uh, Were were the Denver kids driving down to there, or did you have some practices in Denver, some in the Springs? You mostly practice in Denver because most of the kids came from there. But I, I, my team would practice at the Springs on the weekend because you had almost unlimited ice time. So you get two hours of practice. But I think when Frank's boys were on the team, they probably practiced a little more in the Springs. But since the majority of the kids came from Denver or even up in Boulder or like Jake Slavin, you know, his, he was even further north. So it's a pretty – pretty daunting drive from North Denver Metro to the Springs, but we tried to sprinkle the practices around. Okay. And when you had all the double a programs uh, feeding into, you know, you could move the practices around, but yeah, mostly in Denver and some in the Springs. I, I it just, it never dawned on me. I just think of the Thunderbirds as a Denver team. It never even crossed my mind that they would be down in the Springs and the name Thunderbirds came from from Frank. Uh, funny that he has his fingerprints on that. I can imagine uh, your association with Frank Saratori can only lead to something somewhat humorous. You have a great Frank Saratori story because you just have to turn on his, his press conferences and you can sit back and laugh. I'm sure he, he got you at some point with some type of humor, some type of Minnesota theme uh, to your time together. I mean, you know, we would have these parent meetings, you know, because AAA, you're recruiting, right? So uh, we would have these parent meetings. And I mean, it's just a, like a stand-up comedy routine. It's just so funny. But <laughs> but he's so passionate and intense, you know. It, I mean, I never found it off-putting at all. But, you know, you could just see the intensity just oozing out of him at every point. And one year we were having a meeting recruit, trying to recruit some Bantam parents and and he just lost to his brother, I think. So he starts the meeting out. It's like, and if you have a younger brother and people are like, what? You know, nobody knows the history, right? Or any, that he has a, how would you like to just lose your younger brother? And he just goes on a two-minute rant about losing to Bemidji the day before, before this parent meeting. These bewildered Colorado Bantam parents are like, we don't even know anything about this. Or, we don't know you're from Coleraine. We don't know you have a brother. But that's how the meeting started. It's just hilarious, right? But it was funny, you know. It was funny even if you didn't know the history of Frank and 
just the intensity and how he talked to people about uh, what to do. And, you know, he never tried to make somebody do anything. He's just like, if you wanted this path, here's a path that's available for you. If your kid wants this path, really not you. Right. Uh, if your player wants this path, here's a path that's available for you. But he was always with a dose of humor and a dose of intensity that was kind of unmatched in a parent meeting. Um, he had, um, you mentioned before the show, and we didn't really elaborate it, so I wanted to take this a little bit further with Frank, is you said he's a perfect, you go to me, he's a perfect fit for Air Force. And to me, I think of kind of this wacky, Frank Sertori, super passionate, don't get me wrong, guy. And I think of Air Force guys as super serious, type A driven, uh, focused type of players. How did they, How is that a perfect fit? And maybe explain to me what that means, what, what you meant by that. I mean, there's really a softer side of Frank, though, that you know people maybe don't always know about. I, I think about a kid. It was a kid that never played for me, but he was going to go to the Air Force, and then he failed a – and I exam names Colin Staub. So Frank gets on the phone. He calls uh, Jim Montgomery at DU, uh, gets him, I suppose, a walk on. I'm sure he never got scholarship money that first year. And that kid ended up being a captain and winning a national championship at DU. So there's all kinds of stories like that about Frank doing what's best for the kid, no matter what. And the reason I think he did fit in well at Air Force is because he could take an overachieving bunch of players and make them better than they really were right all those upsets he's had in the first round of the ncaa tournament are no accident right right obviously the talent isn't the same but he can get players to play a game to upset a saint cloud or a, uh you know the different you know first round upsets those guys have had so i think he's a perfect uh, fit in that regard. Could you imagine being in his locker room during an NCAA first round game, the Herb Brooks style speech that guy could drum up to get kids to go up there to knock the door down to go out and play? Yeah, it's got to be amazing, right? Yeah, I think you could put Herb Brooks to shame. I really do because he, he, you live out every word that guy says because he's so passionate. Yep, absolutely. So one of, one of the stories, you know, you you talked about the the the, the missed kick pre- press conference where he talked oh. about the. I don't I don't even see, I could just I just laughed right when you said yeah the go the the Viking guy misses the the uh, the the kick and he had a press conference the next day. I can only imagine what that was all about. But one of his press conferences, I saw him talking about. He said he goes, I'm not even the best goalie on my block. I John Casey grew up across the street from me. That's the kind of stuff he loves just spitting out, like making fun of himself a little bit, but also really prideful of his Iron Range Taconite history, you know, the heritage of him growing up on the Iron Range. Yeah, the guy's got a million stories. Yeah, if your listeners have never, you got to Google that Frank Saratori, Minnesota Viking fan, because he's just, he's just lamenting being a Viking fan the day after uh, – that missed kick against Seattle. I suppose you got to kind of, hilarious. I suppose moving to, to Denver in the early nineties, you got to kind of rid yourself of all the Vikings pain and pick up a couple Super Bowl rings with the Broncos. Yeah, that was much better for sure. <laughs> uh, but, you know, go ahead. Frank would, he would start, you know, he would do, you know, they do these press events with, I think you had Mike Havlin on recently with, you know, they have some kind of press event and, 
And, and Frank's like, I'll take my cadets against your draft choices. You know, he just is awesome, right? He's uh, the best. He really is uh, the best. The best. All right. Uh, at that point, though, eventually by 2006, 2007, uh, you become the T-Bergs peewee coach because uh, they end up getting down to the peewee level. And that's tier one. So you're playing against the best of the best all over the country. Um, does, does life change for you a little bit? Now it's pretty serious. Like, it's, it's no longer underdog. Dogville, you're you're a really good program, and you're playing against you know the Copywares and the uh, Mid Fairfields, Bell Tire, all those guys. Yeah, it's it's really fun. That AAA level is really really enjoyable. I mean, it's you know it's expensive, uh, a lot of travel, but uh, you know it it, w- it was nice to go to AAA that year. We had a great team. Uh, we ended up being second in the nation. We lost to Compuor in the national championship. We were basically ranked number one or number two all year. But it's just a whole different level when you're going to Detroit and there's those six or seven great teams. You're going all over Canada and you're playing against these best birth year players, you know, in the world. And uh, everybody's really dedicated to excellence. And it's it's a it's fun. It's a it's a, it's an eye-opening level uh, going to Detroit and playing Honey Baked one day in Compuware and then Little Caesars and yeah uh, it's it's a it's a challenge it's a gauntlet. It's a little bit. It's, I'm going to say this. It's a little bit different than uh, playing in uh, coaching in East Grand Forks and against Crookston and Warroad and and Rozo, but there's a lot of similarities too, aren't there? Yeah, there really are. I mean. It's just a little bit of the depth of the team, right? Yep. I mean, they're obviously a triple A team is going to be deeper. And, but I mean, I, Minnesota, there's nothing like it though, because you play with the same kids. I mean, when you play for the Thunderbirds, you're having, you know, there may be the same four or five guys on team year after year, but the rest of the team turns over constantly. That's what triple A hockey is. You're always looking to upgrade the bottom of your roster. It's almost like free agency too, isn't it? Correct. Yep. And you're recruiting. I mean, now Colorado hockey is a lot longer season. It's August to March, but AAA is basically a 12-month schedule. I mean, you start in August, you go all the way through national championships in April. You have a couple months of recruiting in May and early June. And you basically have two, you know, you have June and July off. But otherwise, it's a it's basically a full time, twelve month a year job, with recruiting, winter hockey, spring hockey for recruiting, scheduling. Uh, it's a different animal. I mean, it's like I've told everybody. I've had, I've had two full time jobs my whole life, hockey unpaid, and my work at Wells Fargo, which is pays the bills. So in. Uh... Well, I don't even know what year it was, 94, 95, when the, um, when the avalanche came in. It kind of was a boom uh, for hockey in Colorado. But more importantly, it brought in a lot of hockey dads that weren't uh, that were, were, were turned out to be your assistant coaches. Let's go through like a few of them here. Just this is a few of them. This is not all of them. Uh, you had Pierre Turgeon on your bench with you. Walk through coaching with Pierre Turgeon. Yeah, Pierre was great. I mean, he, his son is a 96, and he was retired when he coached with me. And I I don't think – I mean, I learned more from him as a former pro dad than just about anybody. I mean, he helped us change our forecheck, and he was just great. I mean, just – and just a great family man. 
and uh, just a delight to be with because he was really there full time. A lot of the guys I had were still playing sometimes, so yeah. they were there maybe half the time. But Pierre was actually there every single day with me and my staff, and just fabulous. Uh, Michelle Goulet was another one that yeah, you coached Michelle, with. Michelle coached with me in the mid nineties. Um, he was a little more removed. I mean, could he was, he had a pretty big, he was the avalanche director of player person or scouting. Right. So yep. he was gone a lot. So, but you know, what a legend and have him and his son really, um, Vince was not, he was like a B player before he got to Littleton, but he made my team and he ended up going on to having a pretty great career and played college hockey at Providence. And I think we had a lot to, in turning Vince around. Cause I don't think Michelle pushed him at all. And, uh, I think he got the bug to play competitive hockey actually on my team that year and ended up going to play division one at Providence. So great, great guy. And then you had Callan foot, uh, the son of, um, Adam foot. Uh, did you, did, did Adam coach or was he still playing back then? He was still playing, but he helped us that year. We also had Curtis LeCision's son on that same team, so they were both 98s. Yeah. And Curtis was retired, so he coached with me basically full-time, Adam much more part-time. But, yeah, those guys are both great, and everybody brings a little something different. What did Adam and Curtis bring to the table? You know, they're definitely Canadian, you know. <laughs> you know, I was always a big believer in discipline, not taking dumb penalties and you know, they, they could see a little more retaliation at Wee's maybe than I was willing to tolerate, but, but, uh, both great guys, you know, uh, great guys. This is the one I've been waiting to, uh, drop on like, like all 53 minutes. I'm like, I couldn't wait to get to Patrick Waugh fast enough. So you had his son. Was it Fred, his name? Yeah. Fred was on my team. He was on our 2003 national championship team. And Freddie actually scored the winning goal in overtime. Um, so he had a great season, Patrick, that was the last year he played. And I had a little bit of trepidation with Patrick because just his persona, you just don't know if he's willing to conform and do what you want. Um, so I had a meeting with him before the season. I said, here's what I really like you to do. I really need help with our goaltenders, coach the goalies. And here's some other duties you can help me with. And I mean, if you can imagine a guy playing pro hockey and he had a great year in 2003 playing for the avalanche but he probably came to 50 to 60 of our 120 practices he did everything exactly as i asked uh did everything i asked him to he got our goalie to be really the best of his ability and uh i mean he was a great assistant coach just a great assistant coach and and you said his his native language is French. So was his English a little bit choppy to work with? Was there a language barrier there? Yeah, well, he'd been in Colorado then about five or six years, so his English had gotten a lot better than it, when it first came. But yeah, his the kids, uh, yeah, definitely English second language for him. But you know, the kids wanted to do well for him so much that uh, he was a great asset. I mean. Just in the next year, he retired. He went and coached major junior for the Quebec Ramparts, and he won a junior A championship a couple of years after that. So he was obviously a really great coach. All right, now I got to ask you the million dollar question: Coaching with Patrick Waugh, you're down by a goal or two. Was he screaming at you to pull the goalie sooner than than most people uh, would? 
You know, I don't think that ever came up. And he really never came on the bench because he was playing that year. Oh, okay. So he really just came on, came to practices. So, you know, all the work and none of the glory, right? I mean, he just came to practice and, you know, did the things we asked him to do. But we had a great team that year. All right. Here's the last uh, Colorado guy you coached, which, which just blows me away, was Bob Hartley. The head coach of the Avalanche is now helping you run practice. So that's got to be a little bit intimidating, isn't it? Yeah, Bob was great. I mean, and Bob came from a different background, right? Like he didn't, he wasn't a superstar player. He kind of got into coaching by accident and worked his way up the hard way from a windshield factory, you know, job to junior A to the AHL and then the avalanche. But Bob was a great mentor and influence for me. And he came again to like 50, 60 practices being a coach of the avalanche. He came all the time. And he was very deferential, but would teach you what you wanted to learn. And he was just awesome. I mean, just awesome. His son was a goalie and ended up kind of taking the number one job away from a returner at the end of the year. But throughout most of the year, his son was not my number one goalie. But then he became the number one goalie at, at, towards the end in the playoffs and at nationals. And that was the year we were runner up. We lost the national championship in 99 to a Chicago team. Bob didn't say a word when his kid wasn't playing a lot. And then, of course, his kid earned the ice time, and he helped me a lot. And then he helped subsequent years. He would come on the ice with my team when his son wasn't on on the ice. It, was, it wasn't on my team. Just a great guy. I just loved to give back to youth hockey. Did he teach you anything about coaching? Yeah. He he let, you know what I mean? Did he lend a helping hand at all? Like, hey, maybe you should do this or do that. You know, it's a little bit different pros to peewees, but there's still a lot yeah. of similarities. I mean, he was a real D-zone coverage guy, right? Like, I learned a, I learned more about D-zone coverage uh, from Bob Hartley than anybody else. You know, he really, really, that was, he loved that. And you don't think about that with those avalanche teams, but it's probably from his prior coaching that, he really worked on that a lot, and uh, he. How he much of me the diesel coverage stuff that he was teaching you could you apply to peewees? And what what did you change from from back back in East Grand Forks? I mean, what did what did you change yeah. up? You know, he he was just good at teaching about how to let a guy go and talk, pass it off to another player in the D zone when you didn't have the puck. He he was good. You know, he he could break down the game to a 12, 13 year old level. So I think that was a gift that he had because he wasn't a superstar player that just started coaching in the NHL. He'd actually worked his way up through from youth to junior A, to the AHL, to the NHL. So I think he understood how to coach younger players. And so that's why he was so good um, because he'd been there, you know, he'd been a youth hockey coach. Right. Um, okay, now we're going to switch gears a little bit here to just some topics, and then we'll finish it off with some players. Uh, you mentioned the Quebec International Tournament um, in February every year. How many years did you make it to Quebec, and how much work did you have to take off to make that trip? Oh, yeah. we Like I said earlier, Michelle Goulet tried to get me to go, but I was kind of hesitant. And then Patrick started on me and just telling me about this wonderful international tournament. And if anybody's ever set foot in that tournament, you would be hooked for life. So it's a 10 day tournament. It kind of coincides somewhat with winter carnival in Quebec city. 
but the teams that are there, there's over 150 teams. Uh, they're from all over the world and they have all different kinds of levels. So they have C, B, double A, triple A. And you'd have the one of the best teams from Russia, one of the best teams from the Czech Republic, from Germany, from Switzerland, all over North America. And you'd be playing in the, the old Coliseum and now the new uh, arena they built there. Uh, on a Saturday afternoon, you'd be playing in front of 18,000 people. Uh, all kinds of players would come back with their sons. So Mark Messier, in fact, coached a New York Rangers team year after year after year. So you'd be coaching on a Saturday afternoon, 15,000 people against Mark Messier. And wow. I mean, it was just awesome. Um, the thing about that tournament, I mean, if you've ever listened to Wayne Gretzky or just about anybody that played in it, they will list that as one of their two or three best hockey memories. I know Wayne says that he played in it as a peewee. And if you played in that as a 12 year old, it definitely up there in one of your best memories, including winning a Stanley cup guys just wax poetically. And it's, you know, it's almost a cultural experience as much as a hockey. So obviously you're playing against great players at the top level, but you're also building with a French family for 10 days. And I know a lot of our players, um, uh, you know, last time I saw Seth Jones, he mentioned he's still in contact with the Billet family. And uh, you form some kind of, you're in a different culture because it's a French culture and you're yeah. with the family. And they take off work. We would have the same Billet parents year after year. So I had the same Billet parent group. So they'd have some of our players for two years. And they just loved being back with those families and playing in an international tournament like that. That sounds pretty cool. Um I wanted to get to this Minnesota versus Tier One thing. You 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 alluded to it a minute ago when we talked about uh, Colorado players coming uh, to Minnesota, and you were uh, disgusted that a player from Minnesota would actually go to Colorado to play uh, midgets. Um, what what is the difference? What is what is so great about here in coaching in both? What's so great about here uh, in Minnesota versus versus Colorado anywhere in the Tier One land? Well, I mean, there's a, you know, a lot of times in later years when we'd be back with our double-A, uh, triple-A teams, some of the Minnesota parents would say, God, we'd love to do triple-A and go play in Detroit. And I'm saying, you don't, you don't know what you're wishing for, right? So the cost, I mean, I don't know what the cost is to play in Minnesota peewee youth hockey these 1500, days. 1500 2000 yeah but so that does not include you know the parents going to two or three out-of-town tournaments the hotel fees sure. there but so, if you add in another thousand there it's maybe three thousand dollars i think so yeah minuscule right to play on my double a littleton team or my triple a thunderbird team cost was between 12 and eighteen thousand dollars you're on an airplane that does not include time. travel correct that does not include the airplane yeah. travel uh, that would probably include the travel for the okay. player, right? But if right. you bring one parent, it's 12000 If you bring two parents, it's 18000 So, you know, it's a lot of money, um, and it's a lot of travel. It's a lot of missed school, which, you know, you can manage that. But just the fact that you can't drive 15 minutes away and get a good competitive game, I mean, we would have given anything to have that. But we were too good for the Colorado team, so we had to travel. And, and to want to take on all that extra cost and the fact that you're not playing with the same group of guys uh, from, 
age 10 to age 18. You know, when you see Casey Middlestad stay back and play his senior year to be with his buddies from Eden Prairie, I mean, that's just heartwarming. You don't get any of that at AAA. There's nothing like that. So to want to give that up and pay five, six, ten times the money and be on an airplane, I, I just don't get it. Um, it. It's something you need to do in a non-traditional area. You have to do it to be good. But when you've got a great community-based programs like Minnesota has, you can get plenty of AAA in the spring and summer, in my opinion. Uh, I got to ask you, do you have some extra free time? Because how do you know the Casey Middlestat story? That's fascinating that you know that so well. Well, it just it, it mirrors the Joe Bianchi and the Mike Crowley story, right? They all pl- they played their senior year rather than go to the USHL. And I don't think any of them would change one iota of that high school experience, right? Play with your buddies. So I, I, you just don't get that at AAA. It's a little bit different. It's certainly a great level, and it's a lot of fun. It's competitive, but when you add in the cost and the fact that you all that travel, it's not as it's not as glamorous as it looks from the outside. I, that's what I would tell a Minnesota Edina parent, right? Okay. Uh, it's not as glamorous as it looks. Uh, well, you've been a valuable resource so far, and we haven't even gotten to your players. We've got a couple more things here. Um, we talked before the show of kind of your influences, and, and we got to, I think one of them has to be, you mentioned Trebs a little bit, and, and he just passed away, and I know you went to, you left Colorado specifically to come to his funeral. What impact did Greg Treble have on you as a coach, and probably more importantly as a person? I mean, he was the number one influence of all the people uh, in all my years of, of 35 plus years of coaching, I mean, he somehow he took me under his wing when I got Jefferson and I learned more hockey from Trebs than from anybody else. Uh, he was a great coach, the, just the absolute best. And, uh, you know, he'd always take the time to help me learn, teach systems and and uh, how he managed the parents. I think I took a lot of that from him, how I managed the players and just, you know, how you taught hockey skills to players to get them ready for the next level. By, by the time he got to Holy Angels and was winning state titles, were you surprised at all that he had such instant success with the, with the Stars? No. I mean, because, you know, and I'm sure he got accused of recruiting, but he, he never had to recruit anybody, right? Kids wanted to play for Greg Trouble. I mean, you think about, I'll just tell you a story about, you know, the Jefferson glory days. I mean, all the high school players would come to watch his Bantam games, right? And just think about that. Guys like Mike Crowley, famous, put on a pedestal by everybody, and they're coming watching Greg's Bantam teams. That's how much respect they had for Greg. Always, the, the whole high school team come watch his Bantam team. It's amazing. I, uh, one of his... A guy who played for him was a good friend of mine, Joe Pankrantz, and he, he literally, when he, the day he, I was with him, the day he found out Greg had passed away, and he's like, I, I just don't know what to do. I'm numb. I'm, I'm sh- so shaken right now by his passing. What a major impact in life uh, that he had on him, and he sent me a picture of Greg hugging Joe. Joe's the coach at Prior Lake, and Joe had just beaten Holy Angels. I mean, it was a playoff game where they had played, scheduled each other, and he goes, it was one of the greatest moments of my life is coaching yeah. against him as a mentor. 
Yeah, it's just Craig. He's had an untold influence on Minnesota hockey. Just a great, great man. Uh, when you got into the business, now you're down in the Twin Cities. There's uh, maybe a little bit different than East Grand Forks, where it's kind of year round. Um, you, you, which was probably like a, a, a playground for you, because you got to get involved with some other guys like Jack Blatherick and John Russo, and and really, really, uh, uh, you know, build your craft. Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky. I got to coach at a fall uh, overspeed coaching uh clinic with john russo and and i just i mean i read everything jack blatherick ever wrote and then saw russo uh, as a counselor do this on the ice and i just really became a big believer in uh, the russian european over speed skating type of play and practice and that's what i really gravitated to once i got to jefferson and that's a philosophy i carried on through double uh, A and Littleton and through the Thunderbird triple A teams was that whole philosophy, which was, yeah, it's a big, much different scenario, how you could learn so much down in the twin cities from so many great hockey people. Um, you said something pre-show to me. I, I wrote it. I literally wrote it down and it said, my practices are conditioning. We never did conditioning at the end. Talk to that a little bit. Yeah. So I mean, as a young coach, I used to make kids do sideboards and, you know, it's just, that's just really wrong. You know, there's no, uh, when you're skating, um, skating is 30, 45 seconds. It's all quick twitch, uh, high, high intensity movement. So to skate people back and forth is counterproductive to developing a hockey athlete. So I never did conditioning after I learned those kind of concepts. Uh, we would just have such a high paced one hour practice that the entire practice was conditioning. We never did, you know, Herbie's at the end of practice <clears throat> for conditioning. Uh, that's counterproductive to teaching good skating. So everything was high intensity. All the drills were maximum over speed where you're kind of encouraging kids to push it to the limit and fall so that they can get faster. And it, we, we just never did conditioning. Our whole practice was conditioning. Uh, that's a great concept. I, uh, as a 52-year-old coach, I, I learned something there that I, I will take forward as I coach another team someday because I think it's a great con. I never dawned on me. You know, you, you've always done conditioning at the end of practice, and I always liked uh, kind of like a finishing strong kind of thing from a conditioning perspective, but I never thought of how much we've already bagged them in the first 50 minutes. Why would we bag them at the end, right? Yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of a tradition. Got, that was like kind of a yeah, tradition. But it's wrong, right? Yeah. I mean, it just teaches bad muscle memory. And you're better off just to play small games. I mean, and that's something we incorporated a lot. I, you know, George Gwazdecki came around to that, and I ended up having a conversation with him. Uh, one, I think both our teams won in 2005, and, and uh, he made a comment about that season. And, and he went to more small games to make practices interesting. And certainly the last 10 years I coached, we would do high intensity drills and skill drills and then play a lot of small games. That was, I think, the best formula for developing youth players. Have you seen any of uh, George's Valor teams since since you've retired coaching when I watched those guys play? 
No, high school hockey's pretty weak. Even even George's team, you know, really the best players in Colorado play club. They don't play high school. Okay, I just I've yeah. seen that they finally they finally got a state title this year and yeah. just kind of in the making. Kind of a nice little uh, story what he's built there after being done at Denver. Um, okay, so I got a list of names here. We, we went through pre-show. Where I call some are the little names and some are the big names. So these are these are guys that kind of, you know, the little names are ones that no one has heard of here uh, in Minnesota or or maybe even in Colorado for that matter that have played for you. I'm going to read off the names. Let me just tell a little story about each one of them. This first one is Brendan Bonsock. Uh, walk through your impact or his impact that he had on you. Yeah, he he was a player on one of my Littleton teams. Uh, real good player. Um, he never played college hockey, but a great great player. Um, and he came from a broken home, so his mom uh, really leaned on his coaches to mentor her son as a male role model. And I just remember running into her and him long after he played for me, and them telling me how important you know, the year he was with me and then other years with other good coaches at Littleton and how big of an impact we had on him to develop into a young man without a, without a father at home. Here's a name that has a little bit of a Minnesota touch to it. He's now lives here, moved here from Littleton, played for you, Dan Brown. Yeah. So yeah, we, I, I don't know how we got talking about Dan, but Dan Brown played for me at Littleton, a uh, good player, uh, never played college hockey either, but Definitely got the coaching bug, and and Dan was one of the guys that would call me. He coached Panamaze at Wyzetta for a number of years with Nate Hagamo, and he would call me every year in the playoffs and tell me how his team was doing, and just really proud of his coaching, and I think kind of acknowledging that maybe playing for me had gotten the coaching bug into him, and you know he knew I was from Minnesota and would always brag up about Minnesota hockey. So it was really fun to to hear from that. And I've had lots of players go back into coaching, which is very gratifying. Uh, here's number three on your list, Austin Miller. Yeah, so Austin was another Littleton player for me. He was on our 05 national championship team. And, and his dad, I just remember his dad just taking me aside and saying this year of hockey had been such a, a breakthrough for him as far as discipline and doing his schoolwork. And because to play on my team, we practiced so much and traveled so much. You really had to learn time management and, and how to be good in all parts of your life to be on our team. And, and he had mentioned that, that we had such a positive impact on his kid, not going the wrong way with learning some discipline. All right. Next kid is Kevin Allen. This is a, this is a good one. Oh, this is a good, yeah, a good story. So Kevin was a Jefferson player for me. He was on our, my last team with uh, Andy Kran's team that uh, got beat in the regionals. And Kevin, I ran into, I think it was at Schwann's Cup game, and I ran into his dad. And he said, Kevin wrote a paper about you in college. And I'm like, what? And he said, you know, you got to read it. He said, I'll email it to you. And I gave him my business card. He emailed it to me. And uh, Kevin was just talking about the influence we had on him as a peewee player and dedication and passion and, and, uh, and discipline and the things that he learned and from playing on my, it was actually my last Jefferson peewee team, but it was from a college age kid writing a paper about his peewee coach. It's kind of amazing that you think back on the impact you had. 
Oh, I love hearing that. That's good. Uh, last one here is Drew Arrington. Tell me about Drew. Yeah, that that's another good kid. I mean, uh, his dad was my manager for a couple of years in the late 90s at Littleton. Played AAA and Bantams and Midgets. And I ran into Drew uh, right after he graduated from college. And he, he, he played club hockey at a university here in Colorado. And I guess he was super involved in his in his college as maybe he was the president of his frat and this club and that club and played club hockey. And he said, you know, somebody had asked him how he could manage all these different activities as a college uh, undergrad. And he said, I learned it all from my peewee coach, which was just amazing to me, the uh, time management and discipline. He said he all attributed it to playing on my peewee team where he had to come home and do his homework because he knew he had practice and he knew he was leaving to Minnesota that next Friday and was going to miss two or three days of school. So he had to really learn time management. It was really a gratifying comment from a kid that, you know, had a good youth career and played club club in college. I always you saw, talk about the time management and missing school. I, I always joke, and and, and maybe because I'm such a pro hockey guy and I run tournaments and stuff like that, but I always look at these kids uh, who come to our tournaments on a Friday afternoon and uh, they just win a really good, you know, clutch game or they, they lose a tough, they have a tough loss and, and the emotion on their face, their faces, whether they're happy or sad. I look at these kids and I go, you know, what would they be learning right now in, you know, fifth grade, you know, math right now? Would they be learning the life lessons these kids are learning right now? Or would they just be staring off into the outside the window? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, we would, you know, kids would miss six days of school to go to that Quebec BWE tournament. And I'd make them right, learn about why, why is Quebec French, right? I'd say, right. you got to tell me that before we go, like why? So they have to go look the, up the French and Indian war, but you know, that 10 days billeting with a French family, a different culture. I mean, and our kids, you know, don't get me wrong at Littleton and at the Thunderbirds, I mean, they lived a five-star lifestyle. I mean, we stayed at yes. nice hotels, we're in airplanes. And these French families were not typically affluent. They're just hockey families, right? So they're living with a family with a couple of kids, and they probably don't even have their own – they don't have their own room, anything like that. But they would learn so much billeting with that family and a different culture, different language, and a different probably socioeconomic strata. I mean, there's no way they didn't learn more in Quebec – than they would have in that week of school they missed. There's That's no pretty cool. That's pretty cool. All right, let's get to some big names here. Brandon Carlo, which team was he on of yours? Which peewee years was he with you? Yeah, he was uh, with me. He's a 96. He was with me the year because Pierre Turgeon's son, Dominic, was a 96. So he was with me, I think, 2008. Okay. Uh, he wasn't even the best defenseman on our Thunderbird team that year. And, I mean, look at his pro career. I mean, he he's taken uh, – Chara's place when Chara's hurt on the number one pair, top four defenseman for the Bruins, and he's just been a fantastic pro hockey player. He was a major junior kid, right? Yeah, he went to the WHL. Where did he play there? I'd have to look it up. I can't remember. Uh, But a lot of those kids off that 96 Thunderbird team ended up playing major junior, maybe Maybe that's Pierre's influence. He had him yeah, play major junior. It could be. Uh, and then here's the, one of the many Slavens. How many are there? There's got to be five of them, right? I know there's a daughter. 
And I know there's a younger one like Josiah, who's probably like Panem right now. Or oh, he's at CC. Yeah. Oh, Josiah's already at CC. Yep. Oh, I'm getting old, aren't I? Right. Man. Yep. Uh, but yeah, great hockey family. They're a northern Colorado family, though, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, like think Fort Collins, they maybe. Had to do, and they weren't quite. They weren't Fort Collins, but they're definitely North Denver Metro. And to drive to our practices in South Denver uh, was a huge commitment. So I had Josiah played for me on the Thunderbirds, and his older brother Jake played for me at Littleton, and then on the Thunderbirds. Uh, he's a '94. Um, what a great kid, good Christian family. And, um, uh, you know, what a great pro he's turned into being a great college player at CC and then, a you know, number one defenseman for the Carolina hurricanes. It must be fun to watch a kid like that. Who's just like, I always call it the hockey stick just keeps getting better and better and better. He hasn't really hit his full potential yet. Yeah. He might've been the third or fourth D on that team. My, that the first Thunderbird team. You know, Seth was probably our number one defenseman. We had two others that one of them played at New Hampshire is probably a little bit better in Peewees. But, yeah, Jake just kept working, and my God, what a career he has. All right, we got a Minnesota kid, but he has a Colorado connection, Toby Peterson. Yeah, so, Toby, I, I thought of this the other day when you asked Jeff Johnson who the best Peewee player he ever coached. And if you'd asked me that, I'd probably have to say Toby over even – some of the other bigger names, but Toby uh, was probably the best peewee I ever coached. Um, then he played four years at CC and had a great career, Pittsburgh, Edmonton, and then Dallas. Um, and what was it you said to me? He's the only kid that they let play up, right? Had he, had he had to stay down his second year peewees, you guaranteed a state title, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. We would yeah, so he's the only kid, in my knowledge, that Jefferson ever let move up. So they didn't let him move up at squirts, and he won the he won the silver stick as the most valuable squirt in Sarnia. And then he played for me as a first-year peewee. He probably had 90 goals and 150 points, and we were a great team. But he was really ready for Bantams, and, you know, we had a meeting in Sats and Trebs, and we moved him up to, to Bantams, and it was the right decision because Mark Parrish, I think, scored 100 goals that year on his line. Oh, great. Um, we didn't even talk about Parrish, really, and you coached him as well. I mean, yep, I think about Mark. all these kids you coached, and we just kind of bypass Mark Parrish. Yeah. is one of the better, you know, from a Jefferson perspective, uh, probably one of the most accomplished Jefferson alums. Yep, for sure. Mark is a great player for us. Uh, yeah. He was Another a, kid who kind of got better as he got, as he got older. As he got older. Right. Yep, definitely. Uh, Troy Terry. Um, is another one. Um, I, I, I got to hear this story about the World Junior. So talk about coaching with Pee Wees, but tell us the, the World Junior story about his parents. Yeah, so Troy, I've known him since he was three or four years old because he is a Littleton kid. They grew up, uh, played for me on the Thunderbirds. He was on, you know, made the AAA team as a first-year Pee Wee, which is very, very hard to do. Um, and he is a great player for us. And then he goes to DU, of course, and uh, I remember when he was going to go to the world juniors and I asked his mom and dad, his mom was my manager. So I'm very close with the family. And I asked her, are you guys going to go? And she goes, you know, I don't even know if he'll make the team. I think he was on the team, but maybe he wouldn't dress, right. They take more players. Right. So they ended up not going. And then he has this <laughs> moment, right. This TJ Oshi moment, right. Right. Where he's, where he's almost in better in some ways, right, you know, right. Almost better. And, uh, and they never even went to the uh, 
tournament. But uh, yeah, Troy, he's just a great kid. He deserves all the success he has. All right, last name. You dropped it a little bit, but let's dig a little bit deeper on Seth Jones. Yeah, Seth was one of my very best players I've ever had. He ended up playing up as a squirt, and he was on our Littleton 2005 National Championship AA team and then played the next two years for me uh, And as we made the transition to the AAA Thunderbirds. And uh, just a great kid, a great family. I had his older brother, would have had his younger brother too, who now plays for Edmonton, but they moved. Uh, but Seth, just, you know, a great player and, I mean, just an even better man. You know, when I, I I typically go and see the kids when they're in Denver, when there's pro teams in town, and he just, you couldn't find a more gracious, well-spoken, decent young man that's a superstar, and he truly is a superstar in the world of NHL hockey. With a dad that's Popeye who's six foot eight, did it ever yep. worry you coaching? Like, I always get these kids that they're super tall, and will they outgrow the game? You know I mean? There's not a lot of Charas. You know, there's not a lot of six eight, six nine hockey players out there. Did that ever worry you about his development? You know, he Tony, he was such a great skater and saw the ice so well. You just got a feeling he could really play. Uh, but I think his skating, you know, he, he's not, you know, he's six, four, six, five, right. but he's such a great skater that that's what translates for his game in addition to being tall and having a, a good wingspan. And he's just a great kid. I mean, he's gotten me more publicity over the years because he always tells everybody I'm, I'm the best coach he ever had. So I get interviewed a lot more often than I probably deserve all because of Seth's comments. Um, talk about his mom a little bit. I was doing some research on Seth before the show, and and his mom Amy uh, is was and they even I mean Papa even admits it. I think they they've since divorced and was like, man, she was the driver when it came to hockey. It wasn't not that Papa was anti hockey, but she was really into it and and really pushed. She's kind of like the Hall of Fame hockey mom. Yeah, she's a really driven woman, and. Uh, you know, Popeye obviously was still playing pro basketball some of that time. So it was all fell on Amy. But Amy's more aggressive than Popeye. I mean, he says it in that, yeah. I think it's that SI article you found. Uh, she's more aggressive, more intense. And Popeye is a little bit pretty laid back guy, a great hockey dad. Uh, but the mom was really the driver for those kids. It's not every day you get an NBA player, even a retired NBA player, uh, you know, walking in the rink six foot eight, six foot nine, like that. Um, they clearly aren't a hockey guy, right? And, and he's African American. What was yeah. he like as a hockey dad? You said he's laid back, but I'm sure you had some discussions and you probably had some spent some time with him on the road at some point. What was that like? Getting his you know, his viewpoint of, of the game of hockey. I think sometimes guys that have played like that or played a pro sport are easier to have as parents because he understands it's not everything's all wrapped up in, you know, PWAs or squirts or, you know, he knows it's a long road. So he's a little bit laid back in that the kids would kind of take him there. And it's a pretty funny story. You know, the kids started to play hockey because of Joe Sackick, you know, just somehow they ran into him at the Pepsi center and got him started to play. But Popeye was, was great hockey dad because he had a perspective you know he came from a small college background murray state i think yeah kind of kind of had one big ncaa tournament game so that got him drafted and then he's a role player in the nba right and has a 10-year career but you know he knows that 
you know, it's kind of the kid that takes it there, not not the parents. So he would be encouraging and teach the kid how to be a good teammate, but not push too hard. Well, that's fun to hear. I love hearing stories about that. Uh, about your your career here is definitely started. You started in the uh, the the rec leagues of uh, Fargo, North Dakota, and you make it all the way to the the big leagues of youth hockey. I mean, the Tier One National Championships, the Tier Two National Champions. Uh, any other stories? Any other thing that that we might have missed out here uh, in your travels coaching for all these years? No, I mean, I just think I had an interesting, uh, I mean, lucky to have a career where you start out in a small Minnesota town and you go to a big suburban powerhouse and then you go to a non-traditional market. And I mean, when you're from Minnesota or Michigan or Massachusetts, you don't really understand what it's like in a non-traditional hockey market and all the work we had to do to get back, get up to that level and kind of the arrogance. I mean, I just think about, the first couple times I went to nationals and how arrogant the people were from Michigan. And it was very satisfying just beating, putting the wood to those Michigan teams in that 2001 <laughs> national championship game. And again, in 2005, both those years, we beat Michigan teams six to two and six to zero respectively. And just the kind of shock that some team from Colorado could actually have the audacity to not only beat them, but just actually kind of blow them off the ice pretty gratifying right especially when you've seen minnesota and what it's like and then to go to an area that's not a traditional hockey market where people are passionate about the game and the players are just as good you know it was really fun to be a part of that growing hockey in, in Colorado. It really has, uh, the game really has grown. And I think even Minnesota people is, is, is prideful as we are about the state of hockey and all the different players and all the greatness that we have here. I think, I think we've kind of come down a notch, uh, off of our pedestal a little bit about our, our hockey being better than the rest. And I think we have a lot of respect for Florida kids and, and Texas kids and Colorado kids and California kids. Do you sense that as, as, as time wore on and your career up until you, you retired? Yeah, I think it's gotten better. I mean, I think be, at first there people are a little provincial, but then you see a, an Austin Matthews from Phoenix and all the great hockey they play in LA and Florida. You know, you can't help but open your eyes that there's great hockey being played in lots of lots of parts of the country that don't have the numbers in Minnesota, but they do produce a lot of players. Well, this has been a, a really fun show, uh, getting to know you, uh, Kent, uh, getting to know about your coaching background. You know, it's so funny. You've touched so many t people from Minnesota. Minnesota's touched you so much. Uh, it's been a blast having you on. Yeah, thank you, Tony. It's my pleasure. I love to talk about hockey, and certainly Minnesota has got a warm place in my heart for sure. As part of today's show, Kent will be sent a gift from the Minnesotan to him. Uh, thanks to the Minnesota again for their sponsorship for the pod. Make sure you stop in and check out their, their shop or jump online and enter the code TRADITION for free shipping for all YHH listeners. Thanks for tuning in today. We hope to see you around the rink soon.